Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This bonus episode is on the subject of death, which is admittedly a little late, thematically speaking, but I say if people can leave their Christmas lights up in January, then I can celebrate Halloween for at least another week or two. So without further ado, here are some of our favorite spooky death-related articles. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. This article comes to us from Newsweek.com. It is titled, I'm a coffin confessor. I tell people's secrets from beyond the grave. Mm, that, All right. That brought it back in a way that I was worried it was going somewhere else. So, okay. uh, <laughs> so this is by Bill Edgar, and most of this is written in the first person, but I have transcribed it. So Bill is a private investigator based out of Queensland, Australia, and his work involves going into big businesses undercover as a security guard or a cleaner, for example, to find out who's stealing from the business. Mm-hmm. And he tends to find this out pretty quickly because he's good at his job. So around three years ago, one of his clients was being ripped off by someone within his business, but his client was also terminally ill. And they started talking about death and what's on the other side, and Bill suggested the client do his own eulogy. And the client said no, and that he just wanted something more. So as a joke, Bill told the client he could crash his funeral for him. (laughs) About three or four weeks later, Bill received a message from the same client saying, I'm going to take you up on that. So the client told Bill that he wanted him to crash his funeral and that he would pay him $7,300 or $10,000 in Australian dollars to do exactly what he asked. So Bill was to interrupt the funeral when his best friend was reading the eulogy and tell his best friend to sit down and shut up. (laughs) Then he was to explain to everyone that he had something to say on the behalf of the deceased. Uh-oh. Yeah. So anyone can attend a funeral. So Bill just went in as a mourner and sat amongst the family and friends. Uh, you know, he got asked if he knew the man who died. And he said yes, because of course he did. And at a certain point, he stands up and introduces himself. And then he outs the best friend for trying to sleep with the deceased's wife. He asks three mourners who are also at the funeral to stand up and make themselves known, and then he had to tell them to get lost because as far as his client had been concerned, they shouldn't have even been at the funeral. Wow. Yeah. So at first, people were confused, didn't know what's going on. And then a few days later, Bill actually gets a beautiful email from his client's wife and one from the deceased man's daughter. And the daughter had actually been told by her dad that someone's going to do something at the funeral, but she didn't know what. Mm. So it was really daunting, but at the same time, Bill said it made him feel really good. His client was knocking on death's door, and he wasn't going to have the strength to say or do these things himself, so he felt really empowered knowing that he'd be able to do that for this client. So he goes on to tell some more uh, Coffin Confessor stories. One of the most volatile funerals he attended was on behalf of a deceased client at a biker funeral. He had to expose that the deceased biker, who was a sergeant at arms and quite well known, was gay, and his lover was in the funeral party. And that yeah, that was a big confrontation, because at Mm. first, everybody just thought that Bill had a vendetta against the man, Mm -hmm. but the people who really knew the deceased did know that he was gay. After the first funeral confession he delivered, he started getting leads from that. So someone from that first funeral got in touch with their aunt, who was in palliative care, 
And she then contacted Bill and he helped her with her funeral confession. And this one was a more beautiful one because she had left messages for her husband. Bill was essentially helping this poor widower find mm-hmm. these messages mm-hmm. left behind by the deceased, which was really lovely. So that was more of like a one-on-one thing. As if, like, he doesn't just do big dramatic reveals. He'll also just say whatever you want him to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. He, okay. He's not there just for the drama. He's there to deliver your message. Right, whatever but that But in be. the way that you want it. So right. if you want it dramatic, you can get it dramatic. Right, right, right. <laughs> for instance, some people will ask him to do a confession on somebody else's behalf, but he makes sure to speak to them first and get the information from them. Mm. He needs to record the conversation and he needs a contract signed because he needs to protect himself. For instance, if someone wants to confess to a serious crime after they've passed, he suggests that they write it down and seal it and he'll open it after their death because he doesn't want to be in a position of knowing something that has to be reported to the police. Right, at least have the evidence ready to go in a format that is traceable to that person. Right, Right, in their handwriting, whatever, yeah. Yeah. So at this point, he's now done 22 funerals and home sweeps altogether. His fee is still $7,300 for a funeral confession, but he only charges $2,200 for a home sweep. And a home sweep is if an elderly person had a fall, they go to the hospital and they think they might not get back home. They'd engage him to go back to their house (laughs) and clean it of items that they don't want their family and friends to find. Anything from, you know, sex toys to money or guns. He'll clear your browser (laughs) Um, history. That's very nice. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have a best friend who's tech savvy enough to do it, then you can hire Bill. Wow. Uh, There's also some funeral confessions or requests that he's said no to. For instance, one elderly gentleman wanted him to kill his pet dog oh. so the dog could go with him when he passed. Oh. Bill said no to that, but he did say that he'd make sure the dog found a beautiful home. Mm. And after appearing on breakfast television in the UK, he actually set up his own coffin confessions website where people could upload their own confessions, eulogies, and messages for loved ones. He got 8,000 uploads in one week wow. and it just went from there. So, yeah, like there's clearly a need for this sort of service in a really big way. How sad, though, that people don't feel like they can just say it themselves. Like, obviously, the home sweep, you can't get up and physically go hide your stuff. But it's like some of these things, I wish people could just say, you know what, I am going to say I'm gay to my friends and it's not going to matter because I'm going to die and who cares? (laughs) Yeah, I guess there's just circumstances that you get into with Mm -hmm. the people around you where you just don't feel comfortable, but you need them to know. That's right. You really want it out there. Yeah. And Bill has actually had funeral directors tell him to leave in the past. And (laughs) what he does is he tells them that this is his client. And if they don't let him do his job, he'll take his client with him. (laughs) And uh, that is exactly what it sounds like. So before they pass, he sets his clients up with a separate funeral director just in case. So if the funeral director they go with as the sort of main option doesn't accept the reveal, they're ready to literally take the coffin and bury them somewhere else if their final wishes aren't respected. Which is incredibly hardcore, if you ask me. Yeah, Yeah, he's dedicated. He provides a real service. I like this guy. Me too. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, he went as far as to set up the coffin confessions. He clearly has a code of ethics. Mm -hmm. Like, it's weird, but, you know, I feel comfortable with this idea, with these parameters. Yeah. He's also had a few requests from people in the U.S., one guy wanted him to put fireworks in his coffin so that they would go <laughs> off during a parade. Yeah. Another guy wanted to be naked, lying on his front with an open casket, and have Kiss This written on his butt cheek for wow. when the viewing happened. <laughs> It, his job is a little contentious. He said that it's ridiculous the sheer number of people who say that they've been to funerals and out of respect to the living would always keep quiet. 
But Bill thinks that they should be getting up there and saying that the person who passed wasn't the way that they're being described Mm -hmm. or questioning why the deceased was given a religious funeral if they just weren't religious. Right. He says, you know, if you're at a funeral and you hear something that isn't right, why not stand up and say something, especially if it's your best friend or your dad in that coffin. Yeah. It ends saying that Bill's just not sure what the future holds. He's clearly going to keep doing this because there's a market for it. And he's actually getting a reputation to the point where when Bill goes to a funeral, people are going to just start leaving. Right, they and he's know not going to have is. to do so much work. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. They know. And so if they've got beef with the deceased, they know to just get out. Beef with the deceased sounds like such a good band name. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'd go with them I'll, on tour. I'll copyright that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> next link. Next link. Our next link comes from Crime Reads. Ooh. Ooh. This is by Kylie Logan, and it's titled How Dogs Became Detectives. Like sniffing, like I'm not like Ruff McGruff, but like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, sniffing. And in particular, this article looks at cadaver dogs. So basically, Ooh. there are often dogs that are sent out for rescue missions, right, to find mm-hmm. survivors of natural disasters, earthquakes, et cetera, to see who's still living and kind of pull them out to rescue. But sometimes they also have to look for dead people, which is a little sad to think about. But when you hear about how they train these puppers to look for them. It's super cute. <laughs> it's adorable dead bodies. <laughs> it ki- I mean, you know, the, the finding is adorable. The bodies, right. uh, but basically what happens is these trainers use these tennis balls that are stored in a case that holds a certain kind of bait, preferably human blood, <laughs> decaying flesh or bones. But wow. the article notes these are sometimes hard to come by. So there are commercially available substitutes that provide the proper scent. So <laughs> you play with the dog with the ball and it gets that serotonin tone and dopamine burst of like, yay, I caught the ball. Good boy. And they learn to associate the smell of decomposition with the toy. And this training, this playing has to happen over a variety of environments. So you have to do it in both urban and rural settings, day and night, rain and shine, because decomposition as a scent can differ depending on these conditions. Like if somebody dies in arid conditions, it'll smell differently than a death in a human place. And so the dog has to learn the differences as well as be able to distinguish the scent of dead animals from that of a dead human. Hmm. Wow. But it's highly effective. Uh, For example, in 1999, a dive team in Canada spent 12 days looking for the body of a missing boater. A cadaver dog aboard a boat found the man in 15 minutes. Underwater? Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, what they can do, too, is they're also trained to smell gases that can come up from bodies of water. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's another kind of like part of the scent training they have to do, but they're able to do it. Um, In Pennsylvania, dogs searched a 90-acre property and located the remains of four missing men, even though they were buried 12 and a half feet in the ground. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. And they're they're using these cadaver dogs to in archaeological sites now. So like Revolutionary War cemeteries or Roman Hill forts. I mean, you'd have to assume that the scent of decomposition is incredibly faint. But if there's even a trace of it, I mean, we all know that dogs can smell sure a hundred thousand times better than humans can. Yeah. What's great, too, is that it's not a particular breed of dog that can be trained as a cadaver dog. They really look for drive, intelligence, and ability because they have to be smart enough to make decisions and work on their own, but they also have to be loyal to their handlers and to obey commands. 
I feel like I'm listening to like a, a job requirements listing right That's now. That's right. <laughs> right, right. Do they get paid? <laughs> I mean, you know, the trainers probably do. And they probably have earned whatever amount of money they can actually get from this because it's pretty grim work for a human, even though you're convincing the dog. No, this is just fun. It's a game. You're a good boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be the dog trainer at a cocktail party or something like that <laughs> and describing what you do. I train dogs and we solve mysteries. That's right. There's a way to spin this into something sexy for sure. <laughs> it's weird because my, my husband actually had almost that exact conversation with somebody at a party once where the guy was with FEMA for disaster sites where they're saying like, oh, right. somebody's buried. This is actually a super bummer. I don't even know if we <laughs> should talk about this. But it basically, the guy had been dispatched during 9-11 to go search oh, the rubble yeah. with his dogs. And he said, actually, the dogs are very smart. They understand what they're doing. And they get rewarded when they find somebody either way. But obviously, they're smart enough to pick up on the fact that when you find a person alive, that's much better. Yeah. Right? Everybody's oh. cheering. It's like you're pulling somebody yeah. out. And he said that the dogs actually were getting depressed oh. because they were not finding enough people alive. And they said that they yeah. actually had a couple of volunteers go and like sort of half bury themselves so yes. that they could be found. So the dogs could get a boost of like, yes, I found something. Like I did a good job and everything's oh. okay. Oh, and so babies. super bummer. I didn't mean to, you know, drag everybody down. Not, but, not a bummer. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just like we need to support the mental health of everybody in yeah. the healthcare industry right now because they're dealing with basically what those dogs during 9-11 were dealing with. And you need to have a little bit of a boost to keep going because it's critical for the situations that they're in. But it's an individual personality and mood thing that can also factor in. Right. And these dogs aren't just, you know, machines. They're actual creatures no, that have, have you know, good boys. an emotional awareness. So yes. it's, it's we're lucky we have them to be able to uh, do the dirty work of sniffing stuff we can't smell. Yeah, Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This one is sort of similar, but not really. Uh, this is from <laughs> Wired.com, and it's titled The Ethics of Rebooting the Dead. Ooh. So we start with a little story. Uh, on Halloween, Stacy Dowden spoke to her 91-year-old father over FaceTime as he lay in bed in Nebraska with his eyes closed. He was already in a hospice when he began exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19 that Thursday. So facilitated by a nurse's iPhone, she and her sister spoke to him at 3 p.m. from their homes in Pittsburgh and Brewster, Massachusetts, respectively. And they were able to see him and say, I love you and goodbye. And by five o'clock, he had passed. Hmm. So that kind of just sets the right. somber stage. <laughs> just a, a uh, good, happy intro to what's coming next. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So as the COVID-19 quarantine has worn on, digital interfaces have become enmeshed in our emotional connections to loved ones. So family members like Dowden and her sister are saying goodbye using technology, which often provides the only tool a dying person has to help them through the last transition. Christopher Kerr, chief medical officer at Hospice and Palliative Care Buffalo, says that we often see people hanging on until that relative arrives or that child is born. Mm -hmm. And video calls can actually also help facilitate passing on. But what about the whole expanse of time after they die and the people they leave behind? Kerr has long studied end-of-life events, and he notes that often the bereaved experience sensory visitations from deceased loved ones, and these phenomena tend to be very vivid, and they tend to leave them with the sense that the loved one is okay. And, you know, this sounds a lot like ghosts, but, you know, that's just me. Well, is are they talking about, like, people visiting in dreams? Or are they like, I literally hallucinated my dead relative over there in the corner of the room? All it says is experienced sensory visitations. <laughs> right. They're really hedging their language here. And the next line is, 
He hesitates to speculate on the underpinnings of a natural physiological response to loss, but he says these extraordinary experiences point to a spiritual capacity that clearly exists in people, which I think is really sitting on the fence extremely well. Right, uh, right. Here. He's basically but, saying, we're not going to say whether ghosts exist or not. We're going to say that people believe in ghosts. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So explicable or not, when somebody has the sense that somebody they've lost is still there, they want to retain that feeling. And recently, some people have turned to technology to simulate that. So hmm. earlier this year, the devastating South Korean documentary Meeting You showed a mother, Jang Ji Sung, in a virtual reality headset trying to touch an avatar of her late seven-year-old daughter, Na Yeon. Oh, yeah, I saw that. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. And in 2017, Eugenia Koida built Replica, an AI chatbot designed as a digital remembrance of a friend who had died, and then released the code so that anyone could try to build one of their own. That same year, in a piece for Wired, journalist James Vlahos chronicled his similar quest to create a dad bot of his father after he was diagnosed <laughs> with terminal cancer, which is intense. You know, that's like knowing and just being like, well, it's terminal, so let's just start on this AI robot right away. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess something... if, if dad's on board, but I don't know. I think I might be kind of uncomfortable with helping to train my own replacement. Like, you know? Yeah, that's... yeah. There's something a little bit grim yeah, about that. Yeah, And so... The same week that Dowden's father passed away, Kanye West gave his wife Kim Kardashian West a birthday present, a hologram of her late father Rob Kardashian dancing and offering her a birthday wish from beyond. Yeah. And, yeah. That was weird. <laughs> I watched that. Too. Yeah. Oh. And innovators like Finnish engineer UC Tovinen are pushing technology even further. Tovenin is at work on a haptic teddy bear that can transmit touch from one user to another, which is kind of like a remote intimacy sort of thing. Right. That's two people um, who are still alive. Exactly. Yeah. So like that one, I don't think is quite in the same category as Kanye's resurrection via hologram. Right. As the functionality to recreate a person's touch, appearance, voice, and unscripted dialogue progresses, the notion of resurrecting people as digital entities is becoming much less hypothetical, so much so that it almost feels inevitable. It's already been the subject of a very creepy Black Mirror episode, mm -hmm. and just because something can be done doesn't always mean it should be. We learned that from Jurassic Park a long time ago. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, for starters, such a thing isn't always a healthy form of coping. There's also the issue of the agency of the person who's passed. Amber Davison, Associate Professor of Communication and Philosophy at Keene State College and co-editor of Controversies in Digital Ethics, has studied pornographic deepfakes and says the most concerning aspect of digital resurrections would be moments where the person is made to do things they wouldn't have done in real life. Right. I don't know if you saw this, but they actually created a AI algorithm that essentially deepfakes your own face in a video call as a form of compression. So it will read the points on your face. And then instead of transmitting the actual video data, it transmits a reproduction of your own face so that the file size is smaller and it's a lot smoother and higher quality. And it looks almost the same, wow. but just a little bit different. And even that really creeped me out. Yeah, that is really strange. And just to save data, yeah. I mean, that seems like a reason they would definitely do it, too. They're like, we're not trying yeah, to fake absolutely. anybody. We're just going to perfect this technology for data's sake. And then... Yeah, that's just the, the logical conclusion from being able to do that. Now faking people entirely and those who have passed away, especially because now there's also voice deep fakes. Mm -hmm. But bear in mind, it isn't just the bereaved who try to use tech to keep loved ones around. On both sides of the veil, people try to keep the portal propped open. 
Davison recalls a dying mother who set up her Gmail to send birthday messages to her children each year. Mm -hmm. And Care likewise worked with the patient whose dying wishes included a way of ensuring that her daughter would receive a special message on her wedding day. I mean, it makes sense. There's a a distinct ethical difference, I think, between someone choosing to send a message beyond the grave versus someone saying, I'm going to reboot you. And have you tell me that you love me and are proud of me, even though who knows whether you would have said that or not. Yeah. And I mean, as we get more and more digital and more online, I mean, I think about personally, I have books worth of messages of my own that you could recreate my speaking style and the things that I would say from and then (laughs) transpose that onto a video with my voice deep faked. And you could like really recreate somebody. Yeah. Anyone who does a podcast is up for having their voice taken off the air and... Yeah. <laughs> we got a lot of public recordings of your voice. We could... Oh, boy. Great. Uh, maybe we need to talk later. Right, right, right. No, we'll, we'll, right. we'll get some form signed. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, we got a short one here. It's called A Medieval Victim Still in His Chainmail Discovered in Sweden. Huh. And the title is a little misleading because it makes it sound like we just discovered this. But actually, we discovered it in the late 1920s. So it's really more like here's some cool stuff that's currently in a museum in Sweden. You should check it out. Okay, But it is very cool stuff. So we'll give it a pass, I guess. Uh, The other thing that's misleading is the title mentions one medieval victim when actually there are around 1,100 of them. Oh, wow. They were all buried in a handful of mass graves after the Battle of Visby in 1361. And Visby was a thriving trade city on the Isle of Gotland, which lies off the coast of Sweden. And it's sort of right in the middle of the Baltic Sea, surrounded by all these different countries where we have present day Lithuania and Poland and Germany and Denmark. So during the Middle Ages, it was a really critical stop. And at the time, it was protected by a confederation of merchant towns called the Hanseatic League, which is like a union, basically. They all sort of agreed independently of their countries. We're all merchant towns. We're going to stick together. Hmm. And because the Hanseatic League wasn't aligned with any particular country, it was seen as a threat by a lot of particular countries. Hmm. In particular, the Danish king, Valdemar IV, decided he was going to knock him down a few pegs by taking Visby. The article notes that, in addition, it is rumored that the inhabitants of the town sang drinking songs mocking the Danish king, thus causing him to hold a personal vendetta against them. Mm-hmm. You got to be careful with your pub songs, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, at the end of the day, these guys were merchants. So Valdemar arrives with around 2,000 to 2,500 trained soldiers, and Visby steps outside their city gates with about 2,000 locals, around a third of whom were elderly, children, or disabled, which we know because we can analyze their skeletons because Visby lost badly. Ooh. And because their armor and their weapons were all sort of piecemeal and substandard, Valdemar's soldiers didn't bother taking any of it off them. They just buried them exactly as they were, which is cool for us because now we've got all these perfectly preserved gauntlets and skeletons with spears still sticking out of them. And of course, the article has a bunch of great pictures, which you should go look at if you're not squeamish about head injuries. If you are, I'm pretty sure you turned us off after the last article anyway. So, <laughs> and, and that's about it. There's just some really cool stuff in a Swedish museum. And if you ever go, you should uh, check it out. I am a little bit skeptical. I say they can't prove that it wasn't an Army of the Dead situation where these things were skeletons before they died. Mm-hmm. But I guess we'll just have to trust science on that. That's true. And I mean, <laughs> given the king's name, Voldemar, I mean, yeah. total necromancer name. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think he raised an army of the dead and somehow they lost. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
So I'll throw another history trivia question at y'all. When do you think that the idea of vampires originated? Oh, gosh. Mm. I mean, it feels like one of those stories that has to be very, very old that just sort of slowly morphed into vampires over time. It's actually much more recent than I realized. So this article comes to us from smithsonianmag.com, and it's titled Decomposing Bodies in the 1720s Gave Birth to the First Vampire Panic. Wow. That is recent. Yeah. So vampire actually comes from the Romanian word vampiri, which means returned from the dead, which you could also say is related to zombies. So I bet the idea of zombies have been around for a really long Mm. time. But the first legit vampire panic recorded was in the 1720s. So... In July 1725, locals in the village of Kisilevo, on the outskirts of the Habsburg Empire, summoned the Cameral Provisor, a health and safety official. The villagers believed that Peter Blagojevich, who had died ten weeks earlier, was up and out of his grave and bringing death to their homes. Peter's widow claimed that her husband knocked on her door after the funeral, demanding his shoes before attempting to strangle her. Yeah, and Blagojevich remained active over the next nine nights, attacking nine more villagers, and on waking, each victim reported that Blagojevich had laid himself upon them and throttled them. (gasps) And after suffering a mysterious 24-hour illness, they all died. Whoa. As Frombald detailed in his official report, the village elders actually had already made their diagnosis. Blagojevich was a vampiri, which is the Serbian word for back from the dead. And Frombold's only job was just to rubber stamp this conclusion and the villagers would take it from there. So he conducts a formal autopsy on the exhumed Blagojevich and recorded the appearance and smell of the corpse as completely fresh. He noted the appearance of fresh blood around the mouth, which was supposedly sucked from the victims. And with this sort of evidence, he just couldn't find any objections to the villagers' plan of action, which was to drive a sharpened stake through Blagojevich's torso and burn the body. I mean, so the idea is that he's coming back, but then he's reburying himself every day. Yeah, evidently. You know, like, very strong finger strength, I guess. Right. (laughs) So in his report to the Habsburg authorities, Frombold accepted all the indications were present that Blagojevich was indeed a vampire, but he also refused to accept any blame if his superiors felt that his conclusion was incorrect and basically blamed the villagers, saying that they were besides themselves with fear and he did whatever he had to do to calm them down. And Mm. as you might imagine, this report made sensational newspaper copy, uh, leading to the first printed usage of the local term vampiri, which would then soon get into all the other European languages. Mm. So when all the plots in the graveyard were full, as was happening more and more by the end of the 17th century, sextons would actually add another layer, digging graves two rather than six feet under. Yeah, that's where your problems come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And meanwhile, the bodies of the poor or any plague victims were dumped en masse just into pits, and most corpses were only clad in a fabric shroud because coffins were actually considered a luxury at the time. So all it took for the dead to rise was just a heavy rainstorm, a pack of marauding dogs, or maybe a (laughs) sloppy drunk gravedigger like in Hamlet. Some were withered down to the bone, naturally, while others actually appeared ruddy and well-fed, more Uh, lifelike than they were actually gasping on their hollow-cheeked deathbeds. That's a nice little (laughs) depiction from this article. 
And medical science at the time couldn't explain these postmortem anomalies, but folk tradition did have a name for them, which came from the French verb revenir, as in to come back. Mm. So if you've heard of the term revenant, it's sort of a similar thing. Mm. So by any name, these monsters were believed to be the result of improperly observed burial rites or a suspicious death. And we covered the medieval cure, exhume, stake, decapitate, and burn, and then scatter the ashes in running water. So pretty hardcore. But, you know, that definitely makes sure the corpse does not come back, no matter what the corpse actually is. Yeah, and from a sanitation standpoint, if you're burning the body instead of burying it, you've eliminated the disease and gotten rid of the corpse. So it does help a little bit. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So... As the Age of Enlightenment started to take hold, this solution did start to look like superstitious nonsense, especially to Catholic and Protestant bishops keen to move with the times and away from witch hunts. Mm -hmm. So by the early 18th century, parish priests were actually forbidden to carry out any of these rituals. Mm -hmm. But vampires still persisted. When their reports of the returned dead fell on deaf ears, tax-paying parishioners called their local government rep. <laughs> and in late 1731, this was Austro-Hungarian regimental field surgeon Johann Fluckinger. <laughs> and this time, the suspected Vampire Zero was an Albanian named Arnold Paul. And when he was alive, Paul claimed he had protected himself from a vampire's bite by eating dirt from its tomb and cleansing himself with its blood. However, these precautions did not prevent him from breaking his neck when he fell off a hay wagon. I guess he was focused on the wrong preventative measures. <laughs> so 40 days after his demise, four villagers declared that the deceased Paul had returned to torment them, and then those four promptly expired. The local elders, advised by their administrator, disinterred Paul's corpse and found completely fresh blood flowed from his eyes, ears, and nose. Hmm. Settled by this clear evidence, the locals drove a stake through the torso, whereupon he let out a noticeable groan and bled copiously. Ugh. Okay, so I mean, could more than a few of these examples have been people who were prematurely declared deceased and effectively still dying or buried alive? Possibly. I mean... So the article doesn't go too much into what the actual causes were. It, yeah. That is certainly possible, but it also could be the disease or plague or whatever causes bleeding from orifices mm. because, you know, there were all those sorts of nasty things around back right. then. And the groaning, I think I've read, has been a result of gases being released by the body when right. it's punctured, yeah. which just runs through the body. So gnarly stuff, one way or the other. <laughs> I'm really impressed with how much overlap there is between vampires and zombies, like you noted. Yeah. When did the teeth and the drinking of blood come in? I mean, I guess you said the first guy was satisfying himself on their blood and had blood around his mouth. Yeah, I think that's probably where that primary myth came from. Mm -hmm. And also... Powell the Vampire had apparently sucked on calves during his rampage. And as the contaminated cattle matured and were slaughtered, those who consumed the meat also became infected, resulting in as many as 17 new vampires. Oh. So there's this whole idea of eating and the transmission of vampirism mm -hmm. via mm -hmm. the mouth and ostensibly But somewhere the along the way, we lost our calf middleman. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally safe to eat a burger prepared by a vampire. Just don't let him in your house. Yeah. <laughs> so, as the expert in contagious diseases, Fluckinger systematically ordered exhumations and conducted autopsies on all of the suspects, and in the interest of preventing an epidemic and further panic in the village, he sought a scientific explanation for their sudden deaths and the apparent anomalies in decomposition, but he couldn't find any evidence of known diseases. 
So folk hypothesis trumped science as the most plausible diagnosis. As it does. Yeah. (laughs) And Fluckinger classified each of the corpses before him as either decomposing or uncorrupted. Given his imperial loyalties, it's not that surprising he tended to label outsiders who were either Turks or peasants as vampires and had them dealt with in the traditional manner. Whereas those from wealthier Hungarian families, like the wife and newborn baby of the administrator, were quietly reinterred in consecrated ground. Mm. So even in undeath, you know, you can't really get away from politics. And right. Privilege. <laughs> we can be racist yeah. against a dead guy, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so urban planners like London's Christopher Wren advocated for cemeteries outside city limits as early as 1708. But Paris really led the legislative way, restricting burials in churches and urban churchyards in 1765. Hmm. And with the dearly departed now secured out of sight and out of mind, people's once real fear of marauding corpses just faded into the past. And thanks to their new fictional status, vampires thrived throughout the 1800s as these ephemeral, liminal figures amid the elegant monuments of the new necropolises that were their graveyards. That's when they got sexy. (laughs) exactly exactly 1804 or thereabouts that's right and then you know a couple generations later they start to sparkle they drive those really cute volvo hatchbacks i mean (laughs) and they play a mean game of baseball yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) next link Next link. Okay, well, maybe this will give us a little bit of closure since I've got it on the brain. Uh, This is a nice long-form piece from Elemental on Medium.com by Samuel Ashworth. It's about the slow, troubling death of the autopsy. Huh. Mm. It's a really beautiful piece. I kind of wish they didn't have pictures included, but they're Mm. very tastefully done, and you can kind of scroll. They've even got a content warning at the top of it. But basically, in the late 1960s, the autopsy rate in U.S. hospitals was nearly 60%, which is pretty healthy, right? Mm -hmm. But today, that number is 4.3%. And this decline is not limited to the United States. In the U.K., the rate is 0.69%. And so, you know, it's easy to assume that this plunge has to do with improvements in medical technology, that now that we've got MRIs and PET scans and laparoscopy, there's nothing that doctors can't see. But this is completely untrue, in part because of what happens with death certification. So while errors on birth certificates are rare, death certificates have tons of errors. And in part, it's because a lot of medical schools don't focus on how to handle death paperwork. Hmm. This one doctor, she went to Georgetown. They never trained her on the death packet. So she felt really unprepared and she asked for help. So a senior resident said, just write down arrhythmia, which is, you know, just the heart stopped. Right. And for pathologists, when you write arrhythmia or cardiac arrest, this is so useless because we all die of cardiac arrest. Your heart stops. It means nothing. Right. And so as a result, a huge percentage of death certificates, as much as 85% in some studies, have an error in the cause of death section. And about half have multiple errors. But we still use these death certificates as a major source of data. Hospitals use them to compile mortality and morbidity numbers. They send them to the National Center of Health Statistics and then other agencies that then allocate funding and resources. And so, you know, the death certification thing is definitely an issue, but autopsies are hugely important. I mean, they detect antemortem diagnostic errors 
at a frequent and enduringly consistent rate. Well, that's a good reason for them to not want to do them. That makes sense. <laughs> sure. I, yeah. I mean, but that does a disservice to the medical profession entirely. Oh, sure. I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm just saying I understand why they're like, no, please don't find out how I screwed up. Like, let's not right. <laughs> investigate that. But, <laughs> exactly. But what that does is it basically gives doctors, you know, no accountability right. or even data to furnish. Were you correct? Did you miss something? Because, right. you know, unfortunately, mistakes are a really good way of learning. Death obviously has a really high cost of it, but it can furnish information not just to the doctor who is associated to that patient, but all doctors who may encounter situations like these. Hey, this is another thing you might think about. Mm -hmm. The cause of the decline in autopsies, the author notes with a nice pun, they're not dead yet, are thorny and complicated because the most frequently cited problem is financial. So mm -hmm. in 1971, the Joint Committee for Accreditation of Health Organizations elected to eliminate a requirement that hospitals perform autopsies on 20% of deaths to maintain their accreditation, which can affect their ability to participate in Medicaid and Medicare. But this requirement was in place for only six years, and there were problems with its implementation. Then, in 1986, Medicare decided autopsies were not part of patient care and thus could not be funded by the government. So the rate plunged nationwide as mm. hospitals eliminated their autopsy suites and stopped covering the cost for families. So today, a lot of private hospitals have given up their autopsy suites, and the vast majority are now done in teaching hospitals with pathology resident programs. And so the result is whether or not you can afford an autopsy depends in part on where you die. If you die in a big teaching hospital, the service might be offered to you free of charge, as long as the doctor is aware of that policy, which they might not be. Mm. Otherwise, you might be referred to a private practice, which can run more than $10,000, depending on the breadth of examination, and it's not covered by insurance. Wow. yeah. Of course I mean, not. So, especially once they get rid of the autopsy theaters in the hospitals, now you've got to ship the mm -hmm. body somewhere else to make it happen. I mean, yeah, I can see yeah. why. It and pay happen. out of pocket for it. Yeah. yeah. And this has, you know, the funding problem creates another more intractable problem, which is a loss of expertise. To be board certified as an autopsy professional, pathologists must complete 50 autopsies. It used to be 100, but the board was forced to reduce it because they were not able to hit those numbers. Right, it's just not and enough. So, exactly. And so you're getting inexperienced people, but autopsy dissection is not a blunt or brutal. It's basically full body surgery, but without any of the technology that facilitates surgery on the living. So you have to be really dang good at this. And mm. there was a pathologist that the author interviewed, and he said, I recently saw a battlefield autopsy kit from the Civil War, and I thought I could get the job done with that. <laughs> Troublingly, the average age for forensic pathologists is 52. Young doctors are not going into the field, and mm -hmm. it's not really hard to see why. It's one of the least remunerative, least glamorous fields in medicine. And working with the dead is also psychologically difficult. Burnout rates are super high. You know, there's no real way to numb yourself when you mm -hmm. have to dissect a child, for example. Mm -hmm. But even if all of these things were suddenly solved, you know, if Medicare started covering autopsies, if hospitals figured out this was a huge way to do quality control, if overnight it became really sexy, there's another bottleneck. Autopsies require the family's consent, and they frankly freak people out, right? Yeah. We've had all of these, you know, NCIS and different characterizations of people who work in the morgue as being unable to relate to people, or they're just, you know, super goth, or something is wrong with them. They have to be deranged in order to get this kind of work. And so there's a huge stigma against autopsies and the people who do them. I have to admit, leading up to this, I hadn't even thought about autopsies on people where there wasn't a crime suspected. 
Like to me, right. that's like the mm-hmm. only time you ever do them. But then I now realize, obviously, they could be useful in other scenarios for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it is a current issue with COVID testing because a lot of the time they won't do an autopsy on somebody that has died of COVID and they just mark it a general respiratory failure right. in a lot of cases. That's exactly right. And the lack of autopsies totally contributes to the confusion around this, right? So there's an example of a father and son who had COVID, went to Chicago. The son died, but the father didn't. And it's frustrating because it's the same virus, but it acts completely different in everybody. What Mm -hmm. works for one patient might not work for the next. And so not having the information that can give you the gold standard for diagnosis, and sometimes it's the only way of seeing the damage that a disease does to a body. Right. Mm -hmm. So keep it in mind, you might be doing a lot of service to the medical community, to people who may have issues like you do. Well, you guys highly recommend the read. You guys have my permission right now. If I die, cut me up, man. Do it. I'm <laughs> well, you may right want now. to put that in in legal documents because I'm not sure the rest of your family may necessarily agree or look to us as the authority. The key is to get it down in writing. No, 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 no. Podcasts are totally legally <laughs> viable. That is- yeah, yeah, Angie, we have power of attorney now. That's how this works. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from RealClearScience.com and it's titled. When domestic cats eat humans. Ooh. Yes. Any chance they get, I would imagine. Apparently. Uh, Yeah. I mean. Lying in wait. Okay. Don't the humans need to at least be dead first? Are you going to tell me that some animal (laughs) or some cats will actually start going after humans while they're still alive? No. Yeah. They they need to be dead. So most cat owners probably think that their beloved pets adore them in return. And, you know, they may be right. Uh, yes. Still, deep down, there's always the nagging suspicion, does my cat want to eat me? And <laughs> maybe it's when they look at you and lick their lips, revealing their vampiric canines. Maybe it's when they <laughs> spread out on one step of a precarious staircase, almost begging okay. you to trip. Maybe. <laughs> this is all a little from the close article. to home, Angie. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's when they sit on your lap and knead their claws into your supple skin, as if softening the meat. <laughs> Quirky cat behaviors aside, rest assured that your furry feline companions do not want you dead, and they'd prefer kibble to human flesh. Still... If given a chance to feast on a fresh human corpse, they might just seize the opportunity. So, I'm just imagining okay, all this right. study, they've got a little bowl of human flesh and a bowl of kibble, and the cat's like, "Fine, I'll go over the kibble." But <laughs> well, just wait. Uh, oh, so, no. <laughs> scientists at Maidol University in Thailand and the University of Hawaii documented one such instance in 2017. A man was found dead and decaying in his Thailand apartment. Forensic analyses suggested that he had been deceased for three months, and in that time, at least one of his three cats had apparently fed on his body. A more in-depth analysis of domestic cats scavenging human corpses was published in fall 2019. Researchers at the Forensic Investigation Research Station of Colorado Mesa University observed a couple instances of feral felines feeding on decomposing human bodies. So the Forensic Investigation Research Station, or FERS, is the perfect place for this sort of thing. I don't Sorry. think that was intentional on their no, part either. No, no, it's a pun in English, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so located far from any cities in the arid environment of western Colorado, the station's macabre yet undeniably fascinating function is to research the decomposition of the human body. 
Hmm. Thanks to the scientists stationed there, as well as dozens of body donors, Furs' findings inform law enforcement specialists and forensic scientists. In this instance, researchers used cameras to watch two feral domestic cats, which I'm not sure how that works. I guess they're just yeah. cats that were <laughs> released. They're or, outdoor cats. Yeah, they're now outdoor cats. Uh, repeatedly scavenged two donor bodies placed within a fenced area designed to keep out larger animals. The first cat fed on the same body almost nightly for 35 days, focusing on the skin and fat layers of the left upper arm and chest. <laughs> the second cat repeatedly fed on the left arm of another body. In contrast to the first cat, it ate through the skin and fat into the donor's muscle. And though many other bodies were available to the cats, both preferred to scavenge the same ones, and they were not interested in gnawing bones. Hmm. So to back up, these bodies were donated by the people who were using them to science right, to become right. cat food, essentially. <laughs> and they and didn't know that's that. what was going to happen. It's possible they knew, but I imagine they don't tell you what your body is going to be used right, for in science. Right. I mean, it's still a noble pursuit to get information to allay very common fears, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, like, while it's very morbid, I still find it very funny that there was one person in particular that was the most delicious. That <laughs> right, right, right. All the cats like this guy. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you might be asking, what exactly is this research for? Well, it is specifically to help forensic scientists in the case of crimes, I imagine, and figuring out why, you know, a body is mutilated and whether or not it's a cat or not. And if it happened pre or post-mortem. So, so. CSI Crazy Cat Lady edition. Yeah, exactly. basically, yeah. <laughs> and the researchers end the article saying, due to the prevalence of feral cats throughout the United States and the world, understanding the patterns and behaviors of these scavengers can assist in distinguishing between paramortem and postmortem tissue damage. Were they murdered by a cat or did the cat eat them after they were dead? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which I don't think we've had a case where somebody was murdered by a cat before. Not that we know of. Yeah. Now this science could reveal. We don't know. They're very sneaky. It's very true. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. Hopefully you won't have any trouble sleeping tonight. And if you do, hopefully we've given you some interesting things to think about while you're tossing and turning. As always, if you like our podcast, you can support us at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.